On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. And now, another no-brainer money-saving tip from Progressive. It looks like your luggage is over 50 pounds. Is there anything you can take out? Oh, yeah. Let me just toss all these $20 bills. Great. Let me grab you a trash can. Stop. Instead of throwing money away, move some clothes into a carry-on. And here's a better tip from Progressive on how not to waste money. Don't pay too much for car insurance. Drivers who switch and save could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Potential savings will vary. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is Will the Thrill. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Greetings and salutations. And my big brother, Mr. TJ2, the deuce. Howdy. All right, TJ, would you would you care to explain why this week is dramatically different from every other single week that we've had other than two other episodes? So we teased uh, on our social media that we had something coming up that would perhaps melt the faces off our audience. And I think we actually said it may induce pants pooping of some kind. <laughs> um, so Anyone who is a longtime listener of this podcast knows that there is something that is mentioned in every single episode that we do without fail every week, no matter who it is that we're doing a show on, we manage to work in a reference to Manfred Mann or Manfred Mann's Earthman. So imagine our surprise when the uh, guest uh, that LD and Will uh, interviewed a couple of weeks ago, and I'm sorry, remind me of her name, LD, the author? Leslie Ann Jones, one of the greatest rock authors of our time we were so, so lucky to have at the her. very end of at the very end of of, of their interview with her because it's uh, something we feel compelled to do every week they 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 asked if she knew uh manfred Mann, manfred Mann's earth band had ever written an article about them it had ever considered writing a book about them and she said uh, and I'm not going to uh, insult our guest by trying to do my horrible British accent. But essentially, she said, uh, well, uh, you know, Tom McGinnis is uh, one of my best friends. <laughs> and so that set into motion something that when we started doing this a couple of years ago would have seemed unimaginable. We are actually able now to welcome on to the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast, a former member of Manfred Mann, I, I believe still an ongoing member of the Manfreds, Mr. Tom McGinnis, welcome. Oh sir. my gosh! Hi, welcome. Oh, this is ours. You have hello. How do I live up to that? You have <laughs> no no idea what this means to us. Thank you so much for taking 
time out of your day, out of your life, just to talk to us, because I don't know how much uh, you know about us, but we are massive fans of you. (laughs) Yes. The, the, the funny thing is, is that because I, you know, obviously you're not normally eligible for our podcast, thankfully, because we cover the lives, careers and deaths of, of uh, late musicians. But there were a couple of artists who we noticed just somehow came up in every episode and, it was, you know, like a uh, Petula Clark got mentioned a lot for some reason. And I think the Bay City Rollers and Glass Tiger and Manfred Mann and Manfred Mann's Earth Band. And it happened so frequently that, it, you know, that Manfred Mann came up on one occasion and I've offhandedly said, and there it is, ladies and gentlemen, our federally mandated Manfred Mann reference of the podcast. Ha ha. And then without us even discussing it or it officially becoming a thing, we started intentionally writing Manfred Mann into every single episode that we've done. So now, we, sometimes have, the, we have the worked them in. have been thread thin. But others such as David Bowie, where, you know, it was a tweet, like it's been very organic. Or, or Dusty Springfield, I think, was the most direct, uh, easy connection we ever made. But we've, we've done episodes on Tom Petty and Rick James and Frank Sinatra and like that. And had to find a way to tie them into Manfred Mann in some manner. But but you have been so prolific that it's been easy. So can we can we start at the very beginning? How did you how did you get into music? What, what did you formal education or was this learning by doing? Well, um, I mean, I started by listening to the radio. There wasn't much music going on in my home. Uh, I was an only child, my parents didn't play, but we had lots of um, friends and relatives who live around about in, I grew up in Wimbledon, uh, a suburb of London, and uh, everyone I knew was called O'Brien, Murphy, Kelly, so there was a lot of singing, particularly rebel songs and things like that, Um, and the radio was on, but we had this weird radio because you have 110 volts in um, in America, don't you? I, that's we're a TJ. TJ? Yeah, we're 110, yeah. 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 And we're 240. But for some reason, I lived in this little row of houses, and all the houses were 110, which meant you could not buy any sort of electric, electrical equipment and plug it in because everything sold in England was on 240 volts. We were on 110. So we had cable radio no i've what? never heard of it anyway what is cable radio <laughs> we had cable radio which had two stations oh jeez. uh <laughs> one of which was the bbc light program and the other one was the bbc home service the light program had music on it and i used to hear music on there and i'm talking about you know the music of the 40s those were the first things i heard and then for a while, for some reason, the light program vanished and we got AFN for a week or two. American Forces Network, mm-hmm. broadcasting to the forces. In your, so I heard weird things like Amos and Andy, very <laughs> un, uncorrect. Yes. Um, but I'd hear, because of that, I was hearing a bit of what was happening in America. And then the boys downstairs from me, because we lived in a tiny house which was divided in two. The boys downstairs were called Connolly, because their family was from Ireland as well. And the Connolly brothers, who were a few years older than me, they were playing these records. And they were Hank Williams, 
and a great R&B saxophone player called Earl Bostick. So when I was like eight, nine years old, I'm hearing the roots of rock and roll without knowing it. So those were the first things that hit me. Then Johnny Ray hit me. I thought Johnny Ray was great when I heard him. And uh, my aunt, we didn't have a record player because you couldn't run an electric record player, but she gave me her wind-up record player and some records. And she was a big fan of Fats Waller and the Ink Spots. So I was listening to Fats Waller and the Ink Spots. I was getting a sort of crash course in American music. Uh, from all of this. And then somewhere around, uh, you know, rock and roll came along and I thought, this is, this is wild. You know, Little Richard was probably the first one that I heard that I thought, wow. Yeah. What is that music? <laughs> like Steve Martin in that film. What is that music? <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. And I, yeah, I, I wasn't a big fan of Elvis. I liked the very early Elvis, but I like Jerry Lee Lewis and I like Larry Williams. I like Fats Domino, Chuck Berry, all those sorts of people. But what changed it from me just being a listener to being a player is a guy called Lonnie Donegan. Do you know Lonnie Donegan? Perhaps I know a song, but... 1956, Lonnie Donegan did a recording called The Rock Island Line, which was originally a tune by Lead Belly. Actually, it goes back even before Lead Belly, but leave that aside. And it was just him strumming a guitar, three chords, string bass player and a drummer and electric guitarist. It was a sort of jazzy electric guitarist. And it was called Skiffle. Skiffle oh, was... Yes. Skiffle, Skiffle was that's thing. right. Yeah. Lonnie Donegan did the whole Skiffle thing. Now, later on, David Bowie would do Skiffle, right? Later on? Well, I don't know about that, but, you know... Lonnie Donegan got it from, it was used to describe Chicago music back in the 20s or 30s. And he somehow coined it for this thing he was doing, which was, he was singing um, American folk songs, but speed it up and strumming the guitar, just like Elvis strummed the guitar, I realized quite quickly. And um, Lonnie Donegan was the reason I picked up a guitar. John Lennon picked up a guitar. Paul McCartney picked up a guitar. It was all down to Lonnie Donegan, who had a string of number one hits in England, just doing these fast folk songs. He also had a hit with um, the Battle of New Orleans when he did a cover version, which was a big American hit. Uh, And uh, I started playing acoustic guitar and playing these folk songs fast. And all my friends bought guitars and we were all strumming together and singing. And we quickly realized that if you amplified those three chords, you could play like Carl Perkins and all the rockabilly people and Buddy Holly. So, you know, went went from an acoustic guitar to an electric guitar, all of which I had to buy on what was called the Never Never because we didn't have any money, my family. We were very, very poor, but you could buy them by paying, you know, two pounds a week. And I got my my father, mother, thank them. Uh, they bought me an electric guitar and an amplifier. And uh, I just fell into it from there. Never thinking I was going to do it professionally or make a living out of it. Although I'd still be doing it now, 60 something years later. <laughs> now, it's really interesting because 
I've listened to a number of your solo things, Tom. And if anyone hasn't, you you need to please do yourself the service. Um, and one of the things that jumped out at me was that sort of post-war Chicago blues kind of sound that it had to it. Oh, yeah. uh, were there? Any, I mean, the first artist that came to mind was BB King. Instantly, um, yeah. is is he one of the folks that you would look to influence, or was there? Obviously, there's a lot of people in the mix. He was later. Okay. He was later. What happened to me is that I loved rock and roll and I was quite into s s some pop. Uh, but by the early 60s, uh, rock and roll had become very tame. And uh, a lot of the people had sort of moved away from it, like Elvis did very early on. And Johnny Cash went off more into country and, uh, you know, Chuck Berry went to jail and Jerry Lee Lewis was thrown out of England for bringing his 13-year-old child bride with him. So I was looking for something to replace the excitement of uh, rock and roll. And by listening to Chuck Berry, I became aware of Chess and Checker Records in Chicago who were recording The Giants. So along with we were dotted all over the United Kingdom. There were people seeking out these records. Elmore James, John Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters, Sonny Boy Williamson, Howling Wolf, Little Walter, all of these people. That's, that replaced the excitement of rock and roll for me. And it turned out there were a few other people dotted around. Um, obviously, some of them went on to be famous, like Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Eric Clapton, Eric Burden, the animals up there in Newcastle, Stevie Winwood in Birmingham. Um, we were all listening to these. And it's really weird because we're white kids. And there is something about this Chicago 1956 music that completely spoke to us. Jimmy Reed was another one that we loved. and. Um, that was, that was a game changer for me. I was playing in a little local band. We were playing in the youth club, at the pubs, roundabout. Um, occasionally, we used to have a thing called Saturday morning pictures, which is where children went along between nine and 12 on a Saturday morning. And we would watch, you know, a Randolph Scott cowboy film and Batman, black and white, and, um, you know, a few cartoons and things like that. But we occasionally played in this local band before the film went on. Yeah, we go and play three, four, five songs. But we were playing a combination of the things like Buddy Holly that we loved and also things by Cliff Richard and the Shadows and stuff. And I realized somewhere about 1962 that I didn't want to go on doing this. I wanted to try playing Chicago blues, which was, it's like the innocence of youth. You think, you know, there are these giants who were playing it over there in Chicago, and most of them are still alive then. And, uh, you know, I thought I wanted to do that. And I can remember when I left my little local band, uh, the guys I'd grown up with, they were all at the school, school with me and things like that. And they said, you know, no one wants to hear that music. And I said, I know, but I want to play it. <laughs> and I felt like, you know, it's like the jazz, it's like the jazz musician who, you know, I've got a friend who teaches saxophone players. He's got a young player he thinks is tremendous. And the player is capable of playing anything on saxophone. He's like 16 years old. 
and my friend who is teaching him said, you know, have you considered a career in music? And, and I said, yeah, yeah, I have. And my friend said, well, you know, you could, you could explore classical music with a clarinet or, you know, there are pieces for saxophone or you could, you could go into playing popular music. You know, there's always call for saxophone. He said, no, I want to play jazz. And my friend said to him, why do you want to play jazz? He said, I'm not good with crowds. <laughs> so I felt a bit like that when my friend said to me, you know, no one wants to hear it. I know, but yeah. And, and then there was a search over a few years. Well, no, really, it wasn't a few years. It was a year or two where I uh, saw an advert in the Melody Maker, which was an English newspaper, a music paper, which specialized more in dance music and jazz, but it was having to move with the times. And um, people advertised for musicians in there, to, you know, accordionist wanted or you know, trombone player wanted. And I saw this advert which said, uh, I'm a piano player playing in the style of Otis Spann, who was the Chicago piano player. And um, I'm looking to join a band if it's out there playing the music of Muddy Waters, Howling Wolf, Sonny Boy Williamson, etc. And I wrote to this, it was a box number, and I wrote to the box number and said, well, I haven't got that band, but I'd like to be in it as well. And he said, well, come down to Oxford where he lived. I was still living in Wimbledon with my folks. And um, he was a guy called Ben Palmer. There's another whole story there. Ben went on to be a bit of a, almost like a father figure to Eric Clapton and was roadie for Cream and stuff like that. And anyway, I met Ben. And uh, through Ben, I met Paul Jones, who was to become the singer of Man for Man. Ben and Paul and I, throughout the summer of 1962, we were trying to find other musicians who wanted to play what we wanted to play, and we just could not find them. And uh, time rolled on. Paul went off and joined the, the very beginning of Man for Man, which was right towards the end of 1962. And I was sort of, I, I'd had a job, but I'd given it up because, well, I worked in an office and I realized that working in an office was not going to be, wasn't going to keep me sane. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> keep, a, you know, I was working with, out. <laughs> I was working with 18 year olds like myself who were talking about their pension plans and what they would do when they retired. It was an insurance company. I left there and I was doing nothing. Um, and I, uh, I went along for an audition at the Station Hotel in Richmond, which is West London. And the Station Hotel was where the Stones really took off in 1963. They played there every Sunday. And I used to go there every Sunday to see the Stones playing. They were the band I wanted to be in. Uh, they were really, they were just playing Chicago Blues, really. Jimmy Reed, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, all that sort of stuff. And I, uh, I, went along one weekday to audition for a guy who was getting an R&B band together. Now, I didn't ask him what he played when, 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 yeah, I just wanted to play. So he said, come along to the station, we're doing a gig and uh, you can sit in. So I walked in and it was like, it was like an Edward Hopper painting. You walk through the bar and you open the door 
and there's this dark room with a band on the stage. And I know I'm silhouetted against the light behind me with a guitar in one hand and an And I know I'm in the wrong place. I want to vanish without anyone seeing me. But the leader of the band uh, beckons me to go to the stage and I do. I know I'm in the wrong place because on stage are three trombone players, <laughs> a string bass player, a drummer and piano. And what they're playing, oh. it's lovely, but it's not what I want to do. They're playing like Count Basie tunes. And uh, I, uh, you know, I, I got up there and played. Now I'm still learning the guitar very much so. And for anyone who, who knows anything about music and guitar players, uh, they said, what should we play? And I'm trying to think of something that I know that they might know, because it's obvious they don't know. They don't know Muddy Waters. They don't know, they know <laughs> Chuck Berry and, uh, uh, they, I mean, sorry, Count Basie. That's what they know. And they know uh, Joe Williams, who was Count Basie's singer. And I thought, well, Kansas City, which I loved by Wilbur Harrison and Little Richard did a great version. I thought we could do that. It's a nice, easy 12 bar. Well, they said, yeah, we know that. And they're thinking more of a sort of Joe Williams type version, swinging Count Basie. And he says, uh, I'll count it in. E flat, okay? And he goes, one, two, one, two. I'm thinking E flat, E flat for a guitarist like me, you know. I knew E flat as the 11th fret up there on the, on the bass string. So I'm playing it like Wilbert Harrison's version, which was like Jimmy Reed, going to Kansas City. Yeah, and they're going, going to Kansas City, Kansas City, here I come. And we'd finished the song and I went um, up straight off stage. <laughs> they said, play another one. I said, no, no, no. no, no. I got off and my girlfriend, who I'd gone with, who after many years in between is my wife, and she's now downstairs, but we didn't get married for many years after that. Um, I came up and she said, how was it? And I said, oh, wrong place, wrong band, you know. And she said, oh, never mind. Oh, this is Eric. I'm at art school with him. He loves the blues. And that was Eric Clapton. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, <laughs> and so Eric and I just spent the next hour exchanging names like John Lee Hooker and he'd say Elmore James and I'd say Buddy Guy and he'd say Magic Sam and you know and we just hit it off like two kids you know we, we were wow. Eric was a little now, younger than me but we were both kids and uh, was now was the band that you you tried out for was that the the Dave Hunt R&B band and did I read correctly that that the person who got the gig that you auditioned for was Ray Davies well, I only heard this recently, but I'm told that, yeah, it was the Dave Hunt R&B band. And Dave Hunt had had a trad band. I don't suppose trad means anything to you, but it was like New Orleans Dixieland band. And there was a whole craze for trad, which I quite liked from the sort of, I mean, Lonnie Donegan, who I mentioned, he was the uh, banjo player in the Chris Barber jazz band. And then he made this single, became, you know, big star. But uh, Dave Hunt had had this Confederates jazz band, which would not be very PC these days because they wore the complete Confederate gray, American Confederate uniform with the, the gray hats and, and, and all that. Uh, yeah, yes, exactly. 
you wouldn't get far with that uh, <laughs> these days. Uh, and they had the Confederate flag and all. And they were all English. Oh, they, knew nothing, <laughs> they knew nothing about it. So he decided that R&B was the coming thing and he, he was getting a band together. And I never knew until probably five, maybe 10 years ago, someone said, did you know that Ray Davis got the job that you turned down? You know, I didn't know that. That's amazing. Uh, and then, so you've met this, this young, other young uh, blues enthusiast named Eric, uh, Mr. Clapton. Um, and you, you ended up being, I think, in, was it two bands with him? The Roosters and then Casey Jones and the Engineers? Yeah, the Roosters was, the, the Roosters was a good band. We all loved what we were doing. Uh, we, we've got Ben Palmer, who I mentioned earlier. He came in on piano. And a guy that I uh, went to school with called Terry Brennan, another Irish name, and uh, Terry had a great record collection. He was really into black music. And uh, yeah, we were just, you know, we were stumbling around trying to be a band. And we had a drummer called Robin Mason, who honestly was only in there because he had a van uh, as well as a drum kit. So we could move around a bit. And he was okay, but he wasn't really into what we were doing. And so we, at that uh, point, was was you were in two bands with him was could you have seen or did you see eric clapton at that point and think like well this guy's clearly going to be acknowledged as one of the greatest ever was it evident then or was he still kind of learning absolutely not we were both learning <laughs> uh i had no idea that he was going to go on and be so successful uh the two of us played guitar we never found a bass player to be in the band we had just two guitars uh, piano and drums, and uh, Terry, who sang and played harmonica. And, you know, because we liked Jimmy Reed, Jimmy Reed hardly had any bass players on his records. Uh, it's like Jimmy Vaughan once said to me, I hate bass players, they get in the way. Um, but I don't feel like that about them. But, uh, um, so we had this band called The Roosters, which didn't so much stop as fall apart. Uh, we had dates in the book and then suddenly we didn't have any dates in the book. And we didn't have anyone booking us. We were trying to get dates here and there, hustling. Terry would get a gig here. With, someone else would get a gig there. Uh, we'd made, maybe do one or two a week and then do one the next week and then not do anything for three weeks. And in the end, it just tapered off because none of us were capable of holding a band together. And Eric and I somehow ended up with Casey Jones and the Engineers. And uh, that was, again, it was a good band, a good bass player. Uh, Eric and myself on guitar, I've forgotten the bass player's name, and a drummer called Ray Stark. And Casey came from Liverpool. And there was a point at which people, you know, the major record labels in London were going up to Liverpool and basically coming out of. Lime Street Station and signing the first person they saw to a record contract, as long as they had the Liverpool accent, you know. And Casey was a bit better than that, but not, not a lot better. He'd been uh, in a band in Liverpool called Cass and the Casanovas, who were doing The Cavern. Uh, and he made this single on uh, EMI, uh, a song called One Way Ticket to the Blues, written by Neil Sedaka. It was a B-side of one of his hits. And so we were sort of put together as a band to go and do a few dates with him because he got a single out and there was some interest in him. So we uh, all 
got into a van and drove off to Manchester and Macclesfield and places. And he also played the Scene Club in uh, London, which was really important to the development of the whole R&B boom in London, because they had a great DJ called Guy Stevens, who would get all the latest American records over. And, and uh, you know, he was playing a mixture of blues, R&B, soul, Motown, all of that, and um, young people would turn up to this club, and you know, we were there playing with Casey Jones, but we were doing a lot of Chuck Berry songs with uh, Casey Jones. A bit like the Beatles, their early set had a load of Chuck Berry in it. And yeah, that that was Casey Jones, but it's sort of that that really wasn't what I wanted to do or what Eric wanted to do, but we felt we were sort of getting dipping a toe in the water, almost becoming professional musicians. You know, we were getting paid, we were turning up at places, and uh, uh, one of the funniest things, if if I'm not digressing too much, we turned up at this club in Macclesfield, and. Um, we set our equipment up and we were tuning up and getting ready to play. And this woman came in and she said, hello, I'm Polly Perkins. You're my, you're, you're my backing group for tonight, aren't you? Now, Polly Perkins made sort of half a dozen singles and uh, none of them were hits, but um, suddenly she put sheet music in front of us. Now, if there's one way to shut a rock guitarist up, it's to put sheet music in front of them. That will really shut them up. So, she and she wanted to do things like "Who's Sorry Now," Connie Connie Francis and stuff like. Well, you know, Eric and I, we and the bass player, we busked our way through it. Um, heaven knows what it sounded like. I hope it was never recorded by anyone. <laughs> and then we did our set with, with Casey Jones and the engineer. And I turned up for a gig in Reading at a ballroom. Uh, with Casey Jones and the engineers, we were playing support to the Undertakers, who were a really good Liverpool band, with Jackie Lomax, who went to, on to record for Apple, and uh, they were a good R&B-based band, great, good saxophone player, good band all around, and uh, they, uh, we played support to them, and uh, Eric wasn't there. So I played the, the whole set without him. And then I went back to the scene club the next day and Guy Stevens said, oh, no, Eric's not doing it anymore. And I thought, well, neither am I in that case. I was only in there because he was there and I liked playing with him. But I had no idea he was going to come on to the success he had. And shortly after that, he joined the Yardbirds and I went down and uh, sat in at least once or twice with them when they were playing at a pub in... Croydon, South London. Um, and I still didn't see that, um, you know, Eric was going to be what he was. And shortly after that, I joined Manfred Mann, but they didn't want me on guitar. They wanted me on bass. So I uh, walked on stage with a bass guitar the first night I played with Manfred Mann. I'd never touched one before that. But I figured it's four strings, can't be that hard. I can play six strings. So, yeah, again, it's the innocence, the arrogance of youth, you know? You don't see the pitfall. Hey, we are going to have to take a quick pause here to hear from our sponsors, but, but we'll be back in just a second with the great Tom McGinnis. And we're back. The, the first time I became aware of what Eric had become was when I heard the Blues Breakers album, the Beano album with uh, Huey Flint, my dear friend Huey Flint, 
and uh, John McVie on bass, and John Mayle and Eric. And I was doing a college gig uh, somewhere with Manfred Mann and the DJ put this record on and I was transfixed listening to the guitar playing. And I went over and said, who's that? And he said, it's John Mayle, blues breakers with Eric on guitar. I said, wow, wow. And I thought then, wow, wow. You know, I'd spent 18 months at that point not playing guitar deliberately because Manfred Mann were good musicians and I really had a lot of catching up to do on bass guitar. So I really concentrated on that. And I thought when I heard that, I thought, wow, I should never have stopped playing guitar. Not that I think I would have ever been anywhere near as good as Eric, who I think is wonderful. I still think he's wonderful. You know, a lot of people knock him for just doing the same thing. It's like knocking Bing Crosby for sounding like Bing Crosby or Raikuda for sounding like Raikuda or B.B. King for sounding like me. I mean, B.B. King sounded the same for 60 years and it was brilliant. And um, yeah, that opened my eyes to Eric's playing that blues breakers, as it did to a whole bunch of people all around the world. Well, now, now coming from that live life where, you know, you would do a gig, which do you prefer? Do you still prefer doing live gigs or do you prefer the studio at this point? Oh, I've always preferred playing. I love playing live. I, if I'd never been in a hit band, I suspect I'd still be playing in a pub somewhere locally. Uh, I just love the interplay of live music between the musicians and then with the audience. Mm -hmm. If there's an audience there, it might not be if you're in the pub down the road. But <laughs> no, I've always loved uh, playing live. I like the studio a lot. I like the technology of things and I like uh, you can try things out. It's, you know, especially once you got to multi-tracking. Uh, you know, you didn't have to get it right first take. You could uh, repair or overdub and all those things. I do like the studio and I like songwriting. I like trying to write songs. Uh, but for me, playing live is, is uh, it's, I mean, my doctor tells me to keep on playing because it's what keeps me healthy. Wow. Uh, and it does mentally and physically, you know. And then going back to, you know, you guys were, were you know, at the birth of rock and roll, what was it like to hear your song on the radio for the first time? Amazing, literally amazing. Uh, I joined Manfred Mann after they put a couple of singles out and I'd heard them on the radio, uh, but they didn't really make much waves except Cock a Hoop, which was their second single. I remember John, um, John Lennon liking it in a Melody Maker thing where they played him some new records and, he, you know, he, he said he liked that and it led to Ready Steady Go, which was the pop music program in England uh, every Friday night at six o'clock. Uh, and that's they where you, came to the. Now that's that's where the, you guys took over from Dusty Springfield, correct? Because she had done the first season and then you guys did the next one, the, the, the theme? Mm, no, or no. Um, no, I mean, I don't know what, you see, we did the theme tune. Right, that's the, I think, did she do the first season and then you guys replaced her after that as a theme song or what, am I getting Listen, my seasons wrong? Uh, it didn't really have a season. It went on every week. Huh. It was like Dick Clark's American Bandstand. It was just on there every Friday night for a couple of years, three years, something like that. Um, no, 
the, the theme tune before we joined was Pipeline by the Safaris, an American re record. Right. You know, surf, oh, yeah. surf instrumental. I think I'm right in saying that. I don't think Dusty ever sang the theme tune of Ready Steady. There was never a theme called Ready Steady Go anyway. Mm. But Hell's Bells, Memory Plays Funny Tricks. And you could <laughs> well be right. Um, and uh, they asked us to write, before I joined, they asked the band to write a theme, an opening theme for Ready Steady Go. And they, they gave quite a brief. It was like being given a jingle to write. It had to be, you know, 30 seconds long, have that bow diddly rhythm, and it had to it had to have a countdown in it, five, four, three, two, one, because it would be five, four, three, two, one, the screen would burst into life for the opening of the program. So um, before I joined, they'd recorded that. They recorded it in late November 63 or maybe early December 63. And I joined just before Christmas 63. And almost immediately, we were on the radio and it was that was that was it was amazing for them it's even more amazing for me because i'd had to get a job moving furniture around in a big department store and you know i was doing that for about six weeks and then the next thing i knew i was on television uh, within about three weeks of joining the band and it was our manager we, were, we used to play the marquee club in london every monday night and our manager ken pitt who um, himself had an amazing story to tell. But uh, Ken came down. We'd just done our sound check at the Marquee before um, yeah, we, we were resident there every Monday night. And uh, he came down after the sound check. It was about 6.30. And the record had come out on the Friday. And he said, it's 28 in the charts. And we just went mad. You know, if it never got past 28, that moment would have lived with me, you know, it was a fantastic feeling to get into the record charts and it went up and up, partly because it's on Ready Steady Go every Friday and uh, and we went on Ready Steady Go to plug it. And we were doing all the TV shows, there were a lot of pop music shows that we could have, uh, we could promote it on and uh, there it was, big hit. And it was really over the next, you know, 10 or so years, it really felt like the musicians from the United Kingdom were coming to the States and it was kind of going back and forth with different musical acts, uh, one of which we've covered on our show. And I, I'm sure if you have inter interactions with hundreds of people throughout your career, one of them was actually Jimi Hendrix. Um, uh -huh. And yeah. I, we, I, I was wondering, did you ever have any interaction with Jimi while he was in London? No. I didn't. I okay. went to see him. I went to see him at the Savile Theatre, which was a great oh, wow. gig. And it was the day after, um, oh, it was the Sunday at the Savile. And on the Friday, Sergeant Pepper had been released. So they opened with Sergeant Pepper that night, mm -hmm. the three of them. Noel oh, wow. And, and um, I saw a lot of Noel afterwards because Noel moved to County Cork in Ireland in the 70s. And uh, I was visiting my relatives over there and my cousin, Joe, Joe Lyons, he was, um, he was uh, a local justice of the peace and a postman. And, uh, and he said to me, uh, do you know a fella called Noel Redden? And I said, yeah, I know Noel. He said, I deliver his mail now. He's living out there at uh, Ardfield, you know. So I went to see Noel and, um, you know, 
I knew him anyway from before he'd ever joined Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. But I didn't know Jimi Hendrix at all. Funny thing is, my cousin, who was a justice of the peace, after he'd heard I'd been out to Knowles, he said to me, I wouldn't be spending too much time out there, Tommy. I do believe there might be drugs involved. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't any of that going around wow. in the 60s, right? The 60s? Nah. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> Surely not. He I mean, this is probably irrelevant and you can edit out, but Noel did get busted for growing marijuana plants. And he, he had this <laughs> big house, it was 300 years old, but it was falling apart. He got a settlement from the Hendrix estate and he bought the house with this, but then he never had any money to do it up. I mean, they bought him out, so he never got any future royalties. You see. Right. Uh, he, he couldn't fix this house and he, he gave the top floor drip through the roof all the time so he grew marijuana plants up there and everyone knew i mean he wasn't selling it he was just growing it for himself and friends and um a new police officer was transferred to the local town and the new police officer was badgering the sergeant all the time to go out there because he was sure there were drugs involved out there and the sergeant knew full well there were drugs so uh they went out there and they went upstairs and the sergeant was walking on and little rooms off to each side. The sergeant's walking on and he looks into this room and it's filled with marijuana plants. So keeps on walking, doesn't say anything. And the guard comes along behind him, enthusiastic puppy, you know. He said, Sergeant, Sergeant, look what I found. <laughs> so Noel was hauled off before the magistrates where he was charged with just possession. And uh, who spoke in his defense? The sergeant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, think, I think Noel was fined something like 10 pounds and told to be a good boy. Anyway, that's not really what you wanted me to talk well, about. The way, the way I look story. at it, Noel, great story. The, yeah. good story. The way I, good. <laughs> yeah. No, the way I the way I look at it is that Noel just didn't want to waste that drip in water. I mean, <laughs> make no, it hit the floor, didn't. or it can hit the plant, and uh, it, it yeah. was sort of ecological before, before before it was known. He was being ecological. He was using the rainwater to grow plants. I mean, yeah, good thing innovative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> This, this just seems like such a an exciting time. And the one thing that, as I've sat and listened to you, you you know, tell tell these stories about the people you encountered. You've already mentioned, let's say, you know, Eric Clapton and Steve Winwood and Eric Burden and the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. And then you think about, you know, the Kinks were were soon to come, and you're you're less than ten years at this point from Queen and Led Zeppelin and the you know the Yardbirds were were around before that. What was it about your country at that point in time that made it such an incredible incubator for unbelievable music? Because that the the music that, that came out of your country from the early sixties to the early seventies is among the best music, in my opinion, that's ever been created. Yeah, literally, if I if I had to choose, it would just be that, just be the UK, and would just be that time frame. If I could only like isolate it to one like you were only allowed to listen to one portion it would be that <laughs> yeah I think there's something I in the water choose, <laughs> if i had to choose a decade it wouldn't be an actual decade but it would be 55 to 65 because what seems strange to me 
is that we were re-exporting American music as far as we were concerned. The Stones, The Animals, Spencer Davis Group, The Who, all of us. We all learned from American music. Without American music, what would have happened in the 60s would not have been what happened because we were all drawing on particularly black music, even the white people that we liked, the Carl Perkins and the Hank Williams and that, that they'd all listened to black music, which had formed them into what they were. Why did it happen? I have a few theories, a, a few thoughts about that. One is that we'd gone through a period of austerity immediately after the war. And somewhere well before the 60s, uh, we had a thing called Teddy Boys where they loved rock and roll and they dressed up in long draped jackets and almost like zoot suits, drainpipe trousers, winkle picker shoes, you know, shoes that come to a real point mm -hmm. and sort of haircuts like Tony Curtis, that sort of haircut. And they were called, and they were really into rock and roll. Um, money was in people's pockets for the first time. Uh, particularly by the early 60s. People had spare money. Teenagers had spare money. I mean, up until really, up, we had rationing until quite late after the war. Sweets were still rationed in England until the early 1950s. Meat and cheese and stuff like that was all rationed throughout the 40s. So we went through this austerity and then suddenly people had money in their pocket. Young people had money in their pocket and there was a great record label over here called London American. It was part of the Decca group. And London American would put out like 10 American singles every week. And they were putting out records, obviously things that had been big hits, like, uh, you know, there, there might be a whole lot of shaking going on by Jerry Lee Lewis, but there would be five other records that had made the lower reaches of the Billboard charts. So we were getting a chance to hear these. There was a station called Radio Luxembourg which was like a pirate station broadcasting from Luxembourg into England. And they would play all the latest singles, whereas the BBC would devote, you know, the, the least amount of time possible to pop music because it was a dreadful influence on young people. We wouldn't want them to hear too much of that American rubbish. Um, <laughs> much, better that, much better that we hear a good old English folk song. Um, <laughs> So we were hearing the music. Lonnie Donegan really changed things dramatically by teaching us those three chords. And uh, then we amplified them. And then there was full employment pretty well. You could try to be an actor. You could try, try to be a graphic designer. You could try to be a musician. You could try to be a writer of novels or something, knowing that you could get a job on a Monday. Might not be hugely well paid, but you know, that, that's quite a liberating thing uh, to know that if you give it a try, you can fall back on uh, like a safety net of a job. Um, but, you know, I'm just, these are random thoughts. I've no idea why it happened. There was a boom in, you know, writing novels. There was a boom in filmmaking. Um, people were getting to realize their dreams in a way that hadn't been possible since 1939 at the beginning. Well, actually, goes way back before that, because like you, we had the Great Recession throughout the 30s, beginning in the 20s. You know, 
People didn't have money in their pockets. We had money in our pockets for the first time and a certain security that you could um, get a job. I mean, when I said to you I was working in a furniture store, it was in Kingston where my current, my, my wife and then my girlfriend, she was at art school there. Eric was at art school there. A lot of people were at art school there. And when they got thrown out, as some of them did, they'd go and work in this department store. <laughs> and you could, you know, you just go along there and say, have you got a job? And they say, yeah, when, you know, can you start today? It was that sort of that cushion that made you try things. I think everything in the whole world is down to economics. So you've, you've done, you've done so much. You've done music, you've done directing, you've done writing. What do you consider one of your greatest accomplishments? <laughs> Being alive. <laughs> <laughs> Fair, fair. <laughs> uh, well, did you did you I'm not want some? I, I remain incredibly, um, uh, you know, again childishly optimistic. I, I, I'm, I'm still capable of doing something else. You know, who knows? Maybe writing some more songs. Maybe getting another sort of band together. Uh, I've had a blues band with Paul Jones for forty three years called the Blues Band, and we've just stopped it. So, you know, I'd quite like to get, because we were going back to that roots thing of Chicago blues. Um, I might do something like that. There are other, you know, I want to write some more songs uh, and find an outlet for them. I'd like to do a bit of production as well, because I've done a bit over the years. So what was the best? Well, there've been lots of great moments. There isn't really a best. You know, hearing the first Bamford Man hit, Five four three two one on the radio it was great. Uh, getting to number one for the first time with Do Wa Didi Didi was great. Getting to number one in America with Do Wa Didi Didi was great. Uh, having hit after Paul Jones left Manfred Man in 1966, Mike Darbo came in. We all wondered whether we could continue being successful, but we were. You know, we had Mighty Quinn was number one in England. Songs like Ha Ha Said the Clown were number one. It was number one for six weeks in France. It was the number one hit, hit in Germany. Didn't have too many hits in America, I will say, over that period. But that's the way. And then after Man for Man broke up, I got another band together with my dear friend Huey Flint, who was the drummer with the Blues Breakers, and two wonderful singer songwriters from Scotland, Gallagher and Lyle. And we had a couple of hit records with a band called McGuinness Flint. And then in late, the late 70s, Paul and I got this band called the Blues Band together just to do two gigs. And we ended up doing, I don't know, 5,000 and making mm -hmm. 16 albums and stuff like that. So I'm pleased I'm still playing music. I'm pleased I've still got fingers and I can the, pick um, up a guitar. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, McGinnis Flint because that man's music sounded to, me, to my ears considerably different than what you had played before and honestly really in, in sitting here in 2022 as I listen to that it, songs like Malt and Barley Blues and When I'm Dead and Gone almost sound like American bluegrass music. Um, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, McGinnis Flint, uh, when Huey and I, when Manfred Mann broke up in 1969 I honestly thought that was it. It's all over for me. You know I've had five years of being in a hit-making band, that doesn't happen again. 
and I'm not just talking about do I have the talent or anything like that. I'm fully aware that what happens in life is random. It's down to luck. It's down to chance encounters. How did I meet Eric Clapton in a pub when I was doing an audition? Um, things like that. Um, you know, we had three number one hits. Do I did it, did it? We heard by the exciters. We put it into our live set. It was dying. Didn't mean a thing. Whereas songs like Smokestack Lightning, Got My Mojo Working, they're going down a storm. And the two or three hits we'd had at that point, they're going down a storm. Do I did it, did it? Wasn't. We were about to drop it. And our record producer, we were doing our, our first album, The Five Phases of Man for Man. Our record producer said, uh, is there anything in the live set that we haven't recorded? Because that's what the first album consisted of, mostly tunes that we were playing live. And, um, you know, someone said, well, there's this tune we've been playing, but it's not going down well. And we played it to him. John Burgess was our A&R man at EMI. He said, that's a hit. And I can remember saying to John, John, it's dying on stage. It's really not happening. It was a hit, you know, chance. Same thing with Pretty Flamingo. Paul had announced to us he was leaving the band and John Burgess brought the song Pretty Flamingo to us. And Paul didn't like it at all. And uh, John said, well, try it for me. I think it's a hit. And Paul, Paul's attitude was, well, I'm leaving anyway, so it doesn't matter to me whether it was a hit or not. And he did a really good job of singing it. And it went to number one. But that made carrying on afterwards. He left immediately after that. That made going on again and having hit records seem even more of a task to that. You know, none of us were convinced we could go on and be successful. But then, you know, we had, we had a whole run of hits with Mike Darbo as the singer in England. And a guy called Lou Reisner, who was the head of Mercury Records, came over to London and he was having supper with Mike Darbo at Mike's place. And uh, Lou, we were signed to Fontana Records in England and in a parallel deal to Mercury Records in America, who were all part of the phonogram group of companies. So Lou Reisner said, look, you really haven't had a hit since Paul Jones left. Is there anything you haven't released? Um, that I could hear. And Mike Darbo put on Mighty Quinn, the Bob Dylan show. And Lou Reisner said, a bit like John Burgess had said three years earlier, that's a hit. And uh, we listened to it again. We went over to Mike's after he said, Lou Reisner says it's a hit. We should look at it again because we, we'd put it aside. We'd recorded it, put it aside. And uh, Michael put it on his record player. We had an acetate, put it on his little 45. And Manfred went over to Mike. Mike, Mike had a grand piano in his room there. And Mike, Manfred went over and started playing along to the acetate. And he said, your record player is running fast. We recorded it in A and it's playing in B flat. And so we went back into the studio and sped up the master to make it slightly faster in B flat added some tablas and a bit of piccolo flute and uh, it was the number one record but again if that chance of Lou Reisner hearing it and saying that's a hit we might never have put it out how did I get onto that I can't remember but chance <laughs> chance all the time yeah Gallagher and Lyle who wrote Morton Barley Blues <clears throat> and When I'm Dead and Gone uh, Huey and I 
we'd first of all set off to try and get a band together playing more like um, Blood, Sweat and Tears in Chicago. And we had a great uh, avant-garde trombonist called Paul Rutherford who brought in an avant-garde saxophone player called Trevor Watts. And then we found this uh, great bass player, jazz bass player called Chris Lawrence, who also plays classical. Funnily enough, I, when, when it didn't work out with McGuinness Flint and him, the next thing I saw him doing was playing Vivaldi uh, at the Royal Festival Hall in London. And Chris Spedding on guitar. We were trying to get this band together playing sort of jazz rock, but it was impossible to get these musicians together in one place because they're all doing lots of other things. So Huey had gone for a drink in a pub and a guy came in, Tony Reeves, who's the bass player in a band called John Heisman's Coliseum, and also was an A&R man for Decca and knew Huey from when John Mayle was on Decca Records. And Huey was there. And he said, what are you doing, Huey? And Huey said, oh, Tom McGuinness and I, we're trying to get a band together and just can't get the musician. And um, uh, Tony Reeves said, oh, you should meet these two Scottish songwriters, Benny Gallagher and Graham Lyle. They're really good. And Benny and Graham came round the next day and uh, they, were, they were what we were looking for, you know. They were a self-contained songwriting unit. They wrote tremendous songs, really, really talented people and if Huey hadn't been in that pub and bumped into Tony Reeves that night we wouldn't have met them so they wrote more barley blues when I'm dead and gone but is there there's something distinctly bluegrass sounding about is there there is well there's another influence or banjo um, yeah there's a banjo on Morton barley blues and there's mandolin on when I'm dead and gone Okay. Um, you know, I can tell you the story of how When I'm Then Gone got to be written. I bought this lovely little mandolin, which was like guitar shaped, and it had a picture of a Spanish lady on the back of it. I just bought it because it looked nice in an antique shop. I strung it up and I couldn't play it, you know, I pulled it around and I hung it on the wall. And then we were sitting around my, uh, we were rehearsing with McGuinness Flint. We got a record deal which was amazing. We got a fantastic record deal through EMI, well, Capital directly. Only Paul McCartney had a better royalty rate than we got. That's, we that's usually this, wow. not the, that's yeah. not, that's not usually the case when, no. when we talk about artists, it's like, we talk about how bad their deals are. Yeah. Well, when we were doing Do Well Did It, when, when EMI earned a dollar, we were getting one cent on that record between the five of us. And our manager had to take his percentage as well. Oh but anyway, um, we, were lit, we were around my place rehearsing with McGinnis, we got a deal. And uh, uh, we listened to the first Robert Johnson album, A King of the Delta Blues. We were listening and talking about his life. And uh, nothing was said by Benny and Graham, but at the end of the afternoon, we rehearsed a little more and then they went off home. And uh, sorry, is that dog annoying you? I can shut the window. <laughs> no, it's, it's right totally fine. As long as our listeners know, I mean, okay. we. It's the neighbor's dog. He's a policeman. He's got a dog. Um, he's a very nice policeman. <laughs> uh, where was I? Yeah, we were listening to Robert Johnson. At the end of the day, Graham said, can I borrow the mandolin? I'll bring it back tomorrow. 
And he came back the next morning and he said, uh, him and Benny, they'd written this song. And they said, um, it's sort of slightly inspired by Robert Johnson, you know, his short life, his early death. And, you know, did he die? Was he poisoned by a jealous woman? So if you listen to the record, one of the lines is, hey there ladies, Johnson's free. And it's about, you know, Robert Johnson. And it's on mandolin. But the reason we were using things like banjo and mandolin is we were really into the band. I oh. love the first two albums by the oh, band. Yes. And that people didn't say Americana in those days, but they were dipping into everything, bluegrass, country, rock and roll. It was all in there. And we wanted to do something like that, but we also brought a bit of, because Benny and Graham are from Scotland and I'm from Irish roots, we brought a slightly Celtic thing in there as well. And so there was always a bit of folk, a bit of rock and roll, uh, even a hint of jazz in there on some of the tracks we did. Um, um, so, yeah, but, you know, Fox on the Run, which Tony Hazard wrote, which was a big hit for Manfred Mann in England and all around Europe and Australia. It wasn't much of a hit in America, but it's been done by so many bluegrass bands since then. Mm -hmm. uh, luckily for Tony Hazard, who wrote it. <laughs> Will, do you have uh, any other questions? Well, I think one of the big ones was, I understand you had written a book in the mid eighties about wanting to be a rock and roll star. <laughs> um, it, obviously times change and methods change. I, I would say, what advice would you impart to anyone looking to carve out a music career today? I don't think it's ever changed. Get a good lawyer, get, get a good accountant. Right. <laughs> uh, Noel, Noel would say that Noel Redding would mm -hmm. say that but he'd also say and carry a gun but <laughs> I wouldn't go along with that one right. get a good lawyer, get a good accountant take advice you'll still sign a stupid deal <laughs> because they're offering you a stupid deal and you want to be a rock and roll star then. Yeah. Yeah. you know I wrote that book because again chance I wrote this book because I went to Alexis Corner I should have mentioned Alexis Corner was one of the big influences on the Stones, the animals, the Yardbirds, all of us. Uh, Eric would go there. We'd go and see Alexis had a band which was composed mostly of disgruntled jazz musicians, but they were playing Muddy Waters tunes and stuff like that to make a living, to make a to make to make a little money. And Alexis loved the blues, and he was like. People talk of John, John Mayle as being sort of the godfather of the British blues, but without Alexis, John would never have come down from Manchester. He would still have stayed up there. Alexis opened the doors. You know, the Stones would go down and watch, well, Mick and Keith would go down and watch him. Paul Jones was down at the Ealing Club, which is in West London, to see him. I went to see him play at another club. He was that bit older than us, and he died in 1984. And we had a wake for him at a club called Dingwalls and there were a lot of musicians there. And uh, Alexis was also the sort of man who was into art and paintings and literature and stuff. And a lot of it, and I got chatting to this bloke and, you know, as you can see, I can talk. And, um, you know, we were drinking and talking and uh, he said, I'm a, I'm a publisher, you should write a book about this. You know, and I did, you know, but if, if I hadn't met this man at, Alexis Wake, I would never have um, got round to writing a book. I have to say, 
it was a very slim volume. I used to write it on planes and trains while I was moving from one gig to the next, one hotel to the next. And I got a, a, a lovely cartoonist called Kipper Williams to illustrate it, who does a lot of business cartoons and uh, political cartoons. He's still around, Kip. And it came out. And I used to think that the record business was pretty inefficient. Boy, is book publishing inefficient. It made the record business look like, you know, a super, super efficient machine. Um, they set up uh, a, a promotion schedule for me where I went round all the local BBC radio stations and talked about the book. And I, funnily enough, I said, I can only give you this week in, in August. The book came out at the beginning of August. I can give you the first week in August. But I was then going off to Noel Redding's place in Cork with my wife and children to, to stay with him for the rest of the summer. And I said, I can do this week. And, um, and that's it. You're on your own after that in terms of publicizing it. So I did a big BBC talk show, an early, uh, a Monday morning culture arts talk show. And uh, that was a good bit of promotion for it. And I went to the bookshop around the corner. Had they got my book? I mean, London, have they got both? No. I then went to Manchester. Did they have my book in the bookshops there? No. I went to Glasgow and did interviews. Did they have my book in the bookshop there? By the time I left for my summer holiday, I hadn't seen a single copy of my book in any bookshop <laughs> from the length and breadth of the United Kingdom. I came back, you know, six weeks later and there it was in the bookshops, but the promotion had been wasted, you know, because no one could buy it. People want it there and then. And if they can't have it then, with the result that about six months later, they asked me if I wanted the remaindered copies. So I got a thousand copies of my book for a hundred oh, pounds. <laughs> Which I sold, at, wow. <laughs> I sold at gigs for the next five years. Uh, oh, that you know, funny. I would never claim to be a writer, but it was fun doing it and, uh, you know, it's interesting. I made a, I've made a couple of documentary TV programs as well. In fact, talking about Jimi Hendrix, do you, have you ever seen a program called The South Bank Show? I have not. No. I don't think we get it it's over a, here. English Arts Magazine. It would probably be on PBS if it okay. ever came to, uh, to America. And, uh, you know, one week they do a program on uh, a German silent film of the 1920s. And the next week they'd look at uh, Ernest Hemingway. And they did some popular music things. And with a friend of mine, Barnaby Thompson, who's now a hotshot film producer and director over here, uh, we made the South Bank show on Jimi Hendrix. Um, so, wow. you know, I, I've, got a, I've, got a, I've got an award somewhere from it, from some Italian TV festival where, uh, you know, I think we got second prize for the best music documentary. Oh, wow. So that was fun. Check that out. That's yeah. awesome. That was fun to do. I'm sure. And it got some good interviews for it. Got Robert Cray to talk and um, Eric Clapton and B.B. King. I interviewed B.B. Nice. King for it. Can I tell you a little story about B.B. Yes. King? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Please. Yeah? I mean, you asked me really <clears> early on. Was he one of the influence? He wasn't one of the earliest for me. My earliest was uh, T-Bone Walker. That was my first influence. 
And he, I then discovered that T-Bone Walker had learned from Charlie Christian, the jazz guitarist. T-Bone Walker, and then I really liked Buddy Guy, and I liked the guitarist who played with um, Howling Wolf, Hubert Sumlin, Pat Hare, fantastic, really, uh, I was gonna say crude, but that's the wrong, but they were direct, very direct in their guitar play. And it was shortly after Eric had joined the Yardbirds and I was in Manfred Man, Eric came round to my place for a meal and he brought B.B. King live at the Regal, which is a seminal album. And I heard that and I was just hooked on the, the music of B.B. King. But even earlier than that, when we were in the Roosters, Terry Brennan, who was the singer, had a single by Freddie King of Hideaway and Have You Ever Loved a Woman, which of course Eric went on to do. So the first time Eric heard Freddie King was when Terry brought this single along to a Roosters rehearsal and, and put it on. And I love Freddie King and Albert King, uh, all of those. But I got, B.B. Uh, King was in London and we arranged an interview with him uh, for the Jimi Hendrix program to talk about what he, what he made of him, wow. you know, how, how he fitted in. And we booked a hotel room and brought a small film crew in uh, sound and uh, sound and camera, that was all. And uh, his manager came along, who was called Sydney, forgotten his name, New York, very New York manager. And he he came in with BB King, introduced him, and and said, twelve thirty, you finish. Twelve o'clock, it begins. Twelve thirty, you finish doesn't run over, he's doing other things, other interviews, you know, fine. Now we've checked all the equipment and B.B. King, I asked him the first question and he starts and the cameraman says, there's a fault with the camera, it's not working. And we've just, we've just filmed with it, it's film camera, it's not video. So we've just made sure it's working, mm -hmm. you know, half an hour we were in there, making sure everything's not working. 10 minutes go by, start again. 30 seconds in, the cameraman says, I've got a hair in the gate, which is film speak for, there's a bit of dirt on the lens. So he has to take the camera apart. <laughs> it's, it's nearly 20 past 12. And we, we start, yeah, I ask him a question, I ask him another question, I ask him another question. The door opens, his manager walks in, walks straight across the camera. Says, time to go, B. And B.B. King says, Sorry, you know, got to do, got to go, you know, other things to do. So I haven't spoken to him outside of doing the interviews and welcoming him and, and all that. But as I left home that morning, I reached up under the shelf. You know, I've got these records beside me here. What am I pulling out? Oh, that's Django Reinhardt. But uh, you know, I take him live at the Regal off the shelf. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I'd taken the vinyl out and I just brought the cover with me. And I said, would you mind signing this for me? So that was done in about 64, that album, 63, 64. And uh, it's now, when was it? 86, 88, something like that. And B.B. King looks at it, he said, wow, I haven't seen this in years. And he turns it over and I'd forgotten. I'd written the keys beside each song. 
because I'm playing along to it when I'm sitting around at home, you know. And he said, why'd you do that? I have to stand up for this. <laughs> I didn't say anything. I just showed him a guitar picture. Nice. For the, for well the, and he said, for the listeners at home, he's holding up a he, guitar pick. <laughs> he said, you should have told me. Sid, 15 minutes more. And he sat down and we did 15 minutes more talking. That's oh, amazing. It's amazing. It was, it's a magical moment, you know. Oh, my God. But just, it's like the brotherhood of guitarists. He, no, right. he doesn't know anything about me, but I've got a plectrum in my pocket. And it, so we did, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's and, simply amazing. And Travis, do you have a final question for Tom? Well, yeah, well, well, uh, well, one silly one real quick. Did you really at one point play with a drummer who had a metal leg and would actually hit that as a drum? No, I didn't play with him. But, you know, I told you I worked in a department store moving furniture around. And he was one of the people who helped to move the furniture. And he was a drummer in a trad jazz, Dixieland jazz band. And uh, he, was, he was only a few years older than me, but he'd had a motorcycle accident. He'd lost a leg. So he did play. Uh, with a metal leg on, on, you know, doing the bass drum pedal with that. But I saw him and he took a solo at the end of a number, very brief solo, and he played all around the kit and then he played his leg. <laughs> One up on Neil Peart. I don't think you Which really that. freaked the audience out. You can imagine, you, you know, he's got a trousers leg, but inside it there's this metal, which is, you know, Hitting with two drums. Oh, yeah, I, I didn't play with him. I did work with him in, an, in a completely different context. I could say I've worked with that drummer. You worked with him. Uh, the other yeah, thing I worked I wondered, with him in a department store. <laughs> in, a, in a department store. I, I saw an interview where you claimed that you, you didn't plan to retire until you were 108. So are you still playing with either the Manfreds or the Blues Band or, or anybody else at this point? Oh yeah, we're playing with the Manfreds all the time. We're touring. In fact, funnily enough, we're um, we're coming to America in uh, sometime. Of, well, we're we're briefly touching down in America. We're doing a cruise from Miami to the Dominican Republic. Oh wow! Okay, how do, how how do we how does our audience find you to get tickets? Or how, I've more... no I, I've no idea. <laughs> uh, I've no idea. I think it must be some sort of 60s thing because this is another small world thing. I was in a bookshop in Liverpool about six weeks ago. And uh, Olivia Harrison was there. She's got a book out about, you know, her life with George. Uh, and I'm just there because it's a bookshop and I've got time to kill. And it's, it, it was late on an evening. Uh, the, sh the bookshop shuts at eight o'clock and they were having her there for a book signing and question and answer session. Uh, so I went up there and who was there with her but Peter Asher of Peter and Gordon. Uh, and the producer oh. of Linda Ronstadt's. Oh, no hit albums. He's in this bookshop in Liverpool. He's with her just for the you know then while the, while what, what, he's over in england so i went over to see peter and uh, said hello he got no idea who i was because i hadn't seen him since we toured america in december 1964 
when we were the support act for Peter and Gordon with Manfred Mann. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah, Travis. Travis, you sound as though you're from the south. Oh, what gave that away? Because <laughs> the guitarist who accompanied Peter and Gordon on that tour in 1964 was a guitarist from the south called Travis Womack. Do you know him at all? I've, I've heard the name. Who, did he, who else did he play with? Well, he made, he had a single out called Scratchy which was a sort it was weird because you know America was still very regional then in terms of radio so we'd go to Miami and Peter and Gordon be number 2 we'd be number 7 and Travis Womack would scratch you would be number 19 then we get to Chicago and Travis Womack scratchy is number 2 Peter and Gordon are number 4 and we're number 6 so he uh, he made at least one album for a Capricorn or someone like that, and he's he's a very good like Southern rock blues. He's he's got that combination of country rock blues all mixed up. Anyway, it was hearing your name, Travis, just brought him back to me. It's funny because hearing, hearing, hearing the name hearing the name Travis and the voice of a hillbilly on the other end of the Zoom call, probably. <laughs> it's so funny though because me and Travis grew up in the same house, like we've been together our whole life, and he's got that accent, and I don't anymore. Where did you Where did you grow up? I know this is nothing to do with the interview. Yep, it's it's <laughs> we grew up in a little town called Chester, South Carolina. South Carolina. Mm -hmm. which is sort of bluegrassy country isn't it it is we have a lot of country a lot of bluegrass yeah yeah lovely so i i know you're still playing but like what's what's next for you more playing i mean we start touring again with the manfreds um next month um and we've got a big tour planned for the end of next year in england uh, and we, I, I'm just going on playing. I'm going to write songs and because the blues band stops. I'm sort of, I feel that things happen to me if I leave a space. Uh, you know, I, I haven't got some plan uh, to fill up the time. I mean, the time goes by anyway. I like reading. I like playing the guitar. I've got a huge family. So, you know, a lot of, lot of, lot of things to fill my time. Now, are there any like social medias or any way that they can, our, our listeners can find you, support you in any way? I don't do Facebook or Twitter or anything like that. But we have, um, if you go to the manfreds.com, all one word, it'll take you to our official website and there's stuff on there. And in fact, although the blues band has stopped going, if you go to the bluesband.com, you can see what we've been doing and um, what, what the various people in the band are doing now. But no, I don't do any of that. I, I, I mean, it's partly because, well, I hate the sort of backbiting and all that stuff of, of, of uh, Facebook. I hate people being horrible. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't mind them being horrible to my face when I'm there. But, uh, <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't like the anonymity that makes them sort of say terrible. So, so I just don't do it. And also, there's, there's not enough hours in the day, as far as I'm concerned, with emails and the phone and Skype and WhatsApp and all that thing. I've got quite enough going on. So, no, 
but people write to me, care of our agent with the man, for instance, things get to me that way. I've just signed a load of album sheet music covers for, a, I got a sweet letter from this 16 year old boy who's autistic and uh, has attention, attention, what's it called? ADHD. Attention deficit disorder. Yes. And uh, he wrote this lovely letter, you know, he's 16 years old. And he says, I can't make friends. I can't mix with the people at school. I don't have anything. In the, but my, the thing that gets me by is music. And he's 16 years old and he knows everything I've ever done. <laughs> it's, 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 just, it's just weird. <laughs> well, um, guys, do you have any closing thoughts? I have one oh. other little story for you about yes. Mighty Quid. Absolutely. Um, Al Grossman came to London and we'd already had a big hit in England with a song called If You Gotta Go, Go Now, uh, which is a Dylan song, which uh, I've only ever heard one. He did record it, but it wasn't on any albums. Um, and it was, it was number two in the English charts by us. It was banned in America, which in, the, in these days of hip hop and, uh, and, and such things and what you can hear on the radio, it was banned because the hook was, if you've got to go, go now, or else you've got to stay all night. It's a guy talking to a woman. You know, it, we were banned on sort of Midwestern stations in America. Uh. Anyway, Al Grossman came over because we'd had the big hit with If You've Got to Go. He brought the basement tapes to London. Uh, not, that, not that they were called the basement tapes then, they were just, you know, series of acetates. Of, uh, Dylan fooling around with the band in Woodstock and uh, Al Grossman's New York Jewish and Manfred is South African Jewish and we went up to this publisher's office and he starts playing songs to us and there's some good stuff on there uh, he played us I Shall Be Released and we took a copy of that away with the idea of recording another song called Please Mrs Henry which we recorded and it didn't come out for like 40 years and Mighty Quinn uh, and uh, he was playing these acetates to us. And it was after Dylan's motorbike crash. And uh, I think he'd done Nashville Skyline after that, something like that. Anyway, he's playing these demos and uh, Manfred says, why does Bob get that fellow with a dreadful voice to do the demos of his songs? And Al Grossman <laughs> looks at him like, you know, New York Jewish thinking, why is this guy putting me on? And uh, Al says, that's Dylan singing. <laughs> oh, man. And Manfred says, ah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's amazing. Uh, all right. Well, right we... my, wife will be, my wife downstairs will be thinking I died. <laughs> and I haven't reached the age of 180. Do you know, I was examined recently. I had a medical problem. And uh, there's a bit of form filling goes on, you know. I, I had to have a procedure. And uh, she, she said, what are you hoping for from this procedure? I said, well, I'm, I'm hoping it puts what's wrong right. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm hoping for. And she said, well, what's your long-term health plan? I don't think in those terms, but I said to her, I'd like to live to be 108 and only be sick the day before I die. 
So I have used that 108 figure before. So it obviously means something. Well, we're hoping you stick around for that long. Now, yes. now I do have, this is a, you can say you don't want to do it. We're totally fine with that. But we do have a favor that we would like to ask of you. Every episode, usually my brother does it because he's got the voice for radio. He did not get a face. He's got a face for radio and he's got a voice for it too. Um, but <laughs> typically he does this, but we would be beyond honored if we could replace my brother's hillbilly radio accent with a wonderful congenial person of your status if we could get you to uh say the phrase that we usually say every episode when we make our reference would you would you do us the honor of saying of course yeah okay, tell me I'm what gonna, it is i'm yes. gonna throw it up in the chat ladies and gentlemen i am tom mcginnis and that was your federally mandated man for man reference of the podcast i hope you are satisfied <laughs> Yes! Yes! <laughs> that was perfect. That I was, would tell I you, would I, say I, that we could retire now, but then yes. we would never get to play that. So. <laughs> that was perfect. I have done some DJing on radio. <laughs> well. That was ideal. That could not have been better. Best thing. Oh my god! Yeah. Perfect. We we. Uh, any we can't say thanks you enough oh my god now, yeah yes now now nobody has to hear my creepy um backwards hillbilly <laughs> voice anymore and and we have an actual member of manfred man that did the That's thing incredible. we do every week I, oh I, that is beyond yep. amazing you have oh. you have no idea how happy you've just made yes. three giggling oh. hillbillies <laughs> On, on I grew up in New Jersey, <laughs> so I don't know what that means. Still a hillbilly, get married into my family. <laughs> fair, fair. I'll, I'll accept it. We we honestly cannot thank you enough for joining us. Do you have any parting yes, thoughts? Anything you, that you'd like our yeah. audience to? Actually, I nothing to do with that. But I have just you grew up in New Jersey. Indeed. When yes. we went to America in 1964 with Manfred Mann, we stayed in a really posh hotel on the corner of Fifth Avenue and Central Park. I think it was called the Strand Plaza. And I got a phone call from the front desk one evening about 5.30. And this boy said, Mr. McGuinness? And I said, yes. And he said, um, <laughs> we have some of your cousins here at the reception desk. And I, I have got cousins. I've got three, uh, two aunts and an uncle in New York who've gone over from Ireland in the 1930s, 20s. And, um, and I said, yeah, that's, yeah. I said, I'll come down and see them. And they, he said, um, they are um, improperly dressed to be in our public area. I said, pardon? They are improperly dressed to be in our public area. So they are in work clothes. So I said, I'm coming down, you know, and I got down <laughs> really angry. And they are, they're three of my cousins. They're longshoremen. One of them works backstage at the... Um, uh, Metropolitan Opera, moving scenery around, yeah. And they're oh, in wow. their work clothes. And uh, I'm stamping my foot at the desk and this voice on my, forgive my bad accent, voice on my shoulders is, forget it, Tommy, come with us. And we go round the corner, down, the side, down some steps, into a bar. There are shamrocks everywhere. Everyone is called O'Sha O'Shaughnessy, Riley, Mahoney. I didn't put my hand in the pot in my pocket for the next two hours. I wasn't <laughs> allowed to buy a drink. Hey, everyone, this is our cousin Tommy. He's number one on the charts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. That sounds New Jersey. It does. Yeah, it's spot on. 
I know the yeah. type. I know the and type. Look, look, here's the thing. My brother has done a British accents so poorly and sustainably for so many years. If you want to come on here and just do terrible American accents, we are fine with that. We will consider it pence. <laughs> Anyway, she, she, figure, she figures I've alienated about half the continent of Europe. <laughs> I mean, you've also I'm, done Africa and Australia, so, you know. And Italy. <laughs> I must go. Would you forgive me? No, absolutely. Oh, we appreciate everything. Thank you so, so it's much. sensational, Tom. Thank it's you. It's been a pleasure. And, um, you know, if there's anyone else I can put you in touch with that you're thinking, why, you know, yeah, just send me an email. If I can help in it. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it, can't thank you enough. Yeah. Cannot thank you enough. You have been wonderful. Thank you so much for giving us so much time and so many amazing stories. Uh, I will email you soon. And uh, to our all of our listeners, uh, I hope you understand how important this interview has been. This has been so wonderful. Again, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Tom McGinnis. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Pleasure. And, and I will shoot you an email soon. Thank you so much. Sarah. I want you to. We live in a world where you just said to Tom McGinnis, "Yeah, yeah, I'll shoot you an email." <laughs> how did we get there? How did we get there? How did we get there? And how did I not turn into Bobby Boucher talking to Captain Insano <laughs> during that? I don't. Interview? I don't know. But but again, that's one hundred percent what I expected was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, have a wonderful Amazing. night, and we will speak soon, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Thank bye you. bye. Bye bye. <laughs> That was amazing. Either, oh I'm serious, I thought I was going to turn into Bobby Boucher talking to Captain Insano or perhaps like the Chris Farley show where I was just going to go like, hey, um, you remember when you were in Memphis Man? Hmm? Yeah. Was that, was that cool? So ladies and gentlemen, I hope you guys enjoyed our interview with uh, Tom McGinnis. He's one of the most prolific guitar and bass players um, in the world. He's played with some of the Giants. He has been on so many albums. He's still touring now. And like you said, he's got this cruise. If I can get the information out to you, I will share that. But right now we're going to leave you with one of Manfred Mann's biggest hits that he did play on. So you guys have a wonderful weekend. We will see you all next week where we pick up episode two of Lane Staley. We wanted to bring this to you guys as soon as possible. So we love you all. Have a great weekend. We will see you next time. i
boat gets here, all the pigeons gonna run to him. Come on without, come on within. You've not seen a thing like the mighty Quinn. Come on without, come on within. You've not seen a thing like the mighty Quinn. Let me do what I wanna do. gets here, everybody's gonna wanna doze. Come on without If you're looking to get a new car, you could really cut expenses by bundling your car and renter's insurance with Progressive. Sure, you love your old car, but you know it's not normal to give instructions on how to open the window. It should be self-explanatory, but it's not. And notice how when you're in other people's cars, you can feel cushion in the seats? That's pretty nice, right? No, it's just normal. So bundle your renter's and car insurance with Progressive and put the savings toward a new car. It's time. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts 
or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.